1666, a great fire leveled much of London, England. And one of the greatest architects at the time uh, was a man by the name of Christopher Wren. Christopher Wren was commissioned after this fire to rebuild St. Paul's Cathedral. And one day in 1671, as the cathedral was in the process of being rebuilt, Wren came across three men laying bricks. And he asked them what they were doing. The first man responded, I'm laying bricks to feed my family. The second one said, I'm a bricklayer. I'm building a wall. And the third man responded with a gleam in his eye, I'm building a cathedral to the Almighty. Three different people doing the same thing, but with, with very different perspectives. And of course, it wouldn't be hard to imagine which one of these would persevere through the difficulty and drudgery to see the cathedral completed. We don't have to guess who that might be. Right? It was the one that saw the beauty of the end for which he was working. It would likely make it to the end. Victor Frankl found this to be the case in his book, The Meaning of Life. He studied Holocaust survivors, and what he found was that those who survived tended to live for something beyond themselves. He wrote, quote, life is never made unbearable by circumstances, but only by lack of meaning and purpose. And so I ask you, fellow bricklayers this morning, what are you doing? What are you living for? We're all trying to build a life in some way. And so are you doing it just to get to the next day? Or are you building a life in such a way because that's what everybody else around you is doing and you haven't given it much thought? Or do you know your meaning? Are you building cathedrals in your life? Where are you going? What are you becoming? Do you, send the, do you see the end or the purpose for which you live? And is that motivating you? Well, perhaps it may be of some surprise to you know that to know that buried within the details of a construction project, we will find our meaning to this morning, our purpose. And as we do, it'll be my prayer, it is my prayer, that we will live with a greater vision for our lives together to motivate us towards building a cathedral together here in the church of Jesus Christ. So big idea this morning, pretty plain, pretty simple. God is making heaven on earth. God is making heaven on earth. On earth. The book of Kings is documenting the rise and fall of Israel's kings. So just a bit of setup to the book of Kings. We find ourselves in the third week of this series. By the way, the, the sermon cards have finally come in. You can find one of those and keep up with the preaching schedule. So you can see those at the front and the back. But uh, the book of Kings is documenting the rise and fall of Israel's kings. The author is focusing on the leaders of God's people in order to help us see ourselves in them. That's what he's doing. And what we're going to find is that even the best of Israel's kings were flawed and misdirected. And because they are, they lead a nation towards desolation and destruction. Remember, I've been keeping us in view. I've been kind of doing the spoiler alert. I've been telling you the end of this book of Kings. And the end of this book is Jerusalem is destroyed. The people are exiled. And the author knows that before he writes the first word of his book. He is not writing for himself and for his immediate audience necessarily, nor is he writing just to document history like a good historian. The author is writing for the purposes of our instruction. You say, Nathan, how do you know that? Well, I've been giving you 1 Peter 1. How about Romans 15? 
Paul says in Romans 15, 4, for whatever was in written in former days was written, why? For our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. That's why kings exist. That's why it was written. So Solomon, we saw last week, was given wisdom for, from God to govern his people. And with some concerning trends, he seems to be, though, generally doing this, seems to be doing well, loving God. But there was one major thing that Solomon still needed to do to fulfill the promise that God made to his father, David. One, let more, one more thing to do to kind of come up under that promise that God made to David. He needed to build a house for God's name, which is a major theme through Scripture. I think you'll see that by the end. Enter 1 Kings 5 to 7. That's what we'll look at this morning. Take a look at 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon. When he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father, for Hiram always loved David. And Solomon sent word to Hiram, You know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him, until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord said to my father, your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. Okay, so Tyre is a city north of Jerusalem. It's about the same distance between D.C. and Richmond. So not too far away. All right, Hiram, king of Tyre, he and David, they used to be boys. They used to be pals. They loved each other. Right, And so Hiram is pumped about Solomon, uh, David's son. This particular son is on the throne. He's pumped about that. We, we learn that David could not build the temple himself because there was war all around him. But now, though, we learn that God has given rest in the nations around them. Solomon, we see then, invokes the words of the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel seven thirteen, when Solomon says, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build a house for my name. This is a big deal, guys, right here. Big deal. The author wants us to connect the promise of God to these events that we're reading about. And I want you to notice that the temple was to house God's name, meaning God's presence would dwell there, but God's presence wouldn't only dwell in this temple. Right? So think of kind of like a Venn diagram, right? So there's a little portion of it where the temple... Uh, of the temple where God's presence would dwell. But God cannot be contained in temples made by man like other false gods. But regardless, something of the presence of God would be in the midst of his people, just as it was in the tabernacle. But Solomon here, though, we see he's initiating a conversation with Hiram because Hiram was king of a region that was sort of like a big old home, uh, home Depot super center. That's sort of where Tyre lived. He was kind of in like a big old Home Depot super center. If you, if you look on Lebanon, he was a king of a portion of Lebanon. And Lebanon, if you look today, has a flag. And you'll know right in the middle of the flag is a cypress tree. So Lebanon is known for their trees. And Solomon needed trees to build this temple. And so Hiram, we see, is pumped about this request. He gives praise to the Lord. And significantly, look at verse 7 of chapter 5. Hiram gives praise. Uh, he praises the fact that Solomon is a wise son to lead God's people. The author goes out of his way to emphasize this theme of wisdom and Solomon's wisdom again in verse 12. 
And the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him. And what's the effect of this wisdom upon a king? God's wisdom upon a king. The effect is peace. Right? Peace between Hiram and Solomon. Wisdom, godly wisdom, leads to peace. Now these, these two guys, they set up a treaty where Hiram floats down a bunch of cedar and cypress logs and Solomon ships up a bunch of wheat and oil to him. And then we see Solomon begins to put a workforce together to build this temple. And we see in verse 13 that he's going to take some 30,000 people to kind of be part of the Lebanon side of the project. 30,000 people. Uh, that's about uh, the size of Nat Stadium, if you've ever been there. That's how many people is going to be involved in that portion of the project. Uh, and we see that this labor for Lebanon is called forced labor. And I want to be clear, guys, this forced labor is not like the chattel slavery of 19th century America. Most Israelites would have loved to have worked on this project because they would have known the project's significance. It would be sort of like knowing the significance of World War II and being drafted. Yes, you didn't have much of a choice, but you're glad to participate in the work, even if it cost you something. And also this work, this forced labor work with Lebanon, we read in verse 14, they get two months off. So they work for one month and then they get two months off. But then there's another 150,000 laborers to prepare the timber and the stone once it gets down there to Israel. So you got some 180,000 folks for this project. And so now we've got the materials put together. We got the laborers put together. Now the building project can begin. That leads to 1 Kings 6.1. Big verse right here, guys. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt... In the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. I want you to pay attention to how he's writing this. This is a significant sentence for the author. It's marking out a major fulfillment of God's promise, promises and wedding them to God's other promises. We learn in Genesis 15, 13 that the Lord told Abraham that his descendants would grow as many as the stars in the sky, but they would then leave the land that Abraham was in at the time and go away outside the land for some 400 years. Fulfilling that promise, we find later Moses writes on the night at which the Israelites are birthed out of their slavery to their freedom to go back into the land. On that night, Moses writes in Exodus twelve forty that on that night it had been 430 years. God was delivering on his promise that he made to Abraham. But the Lord also told them, told Abraham that they would come back to the land. And he would judge the peoples when they came back. God would judge the peoples, the Amorites and the Canaanites. He would judge those people when they came back. And then give them that piece of land wherein God would then dwell with his people. And so now with the emphasis of rest on every side here in 1 Kings, look at chapter 5, verse 4. With the emphasis of rest on every side, with the initiation of the temple building project, the author seems to be saying the Lord has done it again. He has fulfilled his promise. This connection of the exodus to the temple building project with a son of David as king and peace on every side is meant to strengthen our confidence in God's word. Strengthen our confidence in his promises. As well as build an expectation that at this point in the story, every, everything seems to be coming together. That's what it feels like at this point. It feels as though the plan, God's plan for the world is about to reach its zenith. Or so it was thought at the time. And so with great anticipation, we read about all the details of the building of the temple. 
But again, before we do this, I just have to emphasize this, guys. These words, this little project is written for our instruction. And spoiler alert, if you didn't already know, as we said, the author already knows this building he's about to describe, he already knows it's going to come down. And so there's more to this narrative than, than, than just giving us a blueprint for a building. And so as you hear me list off all of these details, I want you to not just read, but I want you to hear the elements of the temple so that your biblical imagination might be informed and you might do what the author wants you to do. Namely, connect this building into the larger framework of God's redemptive story that he is writing and still is writing in the world. This is not just a building project we're reading about. The author is not just reporting the news. The building project is meant to bring together the entire purpose of the world. That's right. This passage is pointing us to the entire purpose of the world, that whole building of the cathedral, as it were. I think you'll agree with me by the end of this. Now, we get the dimensions of the temple there in verse 2 of chapter 6. It's 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. A cubit is about the same distance between your elbow and the tip of your finger. It's about a foot and a half. And so, roughly, this is not, this temple is 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet tall. Or, about the exact same size as this room you're sitting in. So from that door to that baptismal, it's about the exact same distance. The height is almost exactly the same from the top there. The room would have been a little bit skinnier, about 10 feet skinnier. But all the rest was roughly the same dimensions as this room. Remember, though, as we think about that, even though it's important that we remember the authors trying to bring imagery into my into our minds. He shows us that there's some windows He also tells us about this three-story structure that is attached to the outside of the temple for storage and other purposes. And then right square in the middle of all of that narrative about the the putting up of the pen of the temple, right in the middle of all of that, the the, the author inserts this, verse 11. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. Note the connection to the Davidic covenant again. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So again, we hear more echoes of the Davidic covenant. We also hear the same exhortation. Y'all remember this? Back in chapter 2, the last words of David to Solomon. We get the same words there where David said to Solomon, God is saying to Solomon too here, follow the word, follow my word. Same idea, follow, you're going to be a good authority if you understand yourself to be under a greater authority of God by submitting to his word. You do that, you'll prosper. Your kingdom will prosper. Trying to communicate here. Don't use your office for yourself. Don't use your power for yourself. No, serve God. Serve the people of God in the word of God. And God will then dwell with his people and then there will be prosperity. That's what's going on here. And here's what's significant about that, guys. Here's what's significant. Notice that in the middle of the temple building, the glue to the relationship is not the building itself. The glue to the relationship is not necessarily about the the building. The glue, as it were, is about living righteously with God. That's the glue of the relationship. 
And that tips us off that this building was always meant to be a symbol, not the substance of their relationship with God. And by the way, if you're doubting that, take a look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 9. It tells you there that this building was a symbol. What was more important was the word of God, that relationship that they had, all that is right to make the marriage strong. God is mainly interested in the, in the marriage, not in the house. Right? Just as a house doesn't make a happy marriage, so this house won't make their marriage happy. God's eternal law, not man's word, like the laws of gravity, they must be submitted to if this marriage is going to work. Remember that. Remember that, guys, so that when by the time we get to the temple coming down, you'll know. Well, then we get all these details of the finished temple. And again, don't just hear, but listen to these details. The author, the author goes out of his way to tell us that the four walls, floor to ceiling, were made of cedar and cypress trees. Cedar and cypress trees. On the other, on the walls of those inside the temple, on the walls was carved, verse 18, we see that gourds and open flowers are carved. We might imagine almost like this, uh, stained glass windows. Their gourds and open flowers are carved on the walls inside. And then we get details of the inner sanctuary. Now this is huge, guys. The temple was again 90 feet long, but it was made up of two separate but adjoining rooms. The first room that you would have come into was called the holy place, right? Sort of like you come in through that door right there. The, the, that would be the place that you would go, that priests would go in and out of every single day. But then there was an inner sanctuary, adjoining room. And by the way, that would be almost the same distance as this stage back to that baptismal. And you could only go into that room, the inner sanctuary. You could only go into that room. A priest was the only one that could go in and only one priest could go in on one day of the year, the day of atonement. And inside of that inner sanctuary was where the presence of God would be. So there was a wall. We can imagine a wall here. Separate, two adjoining rooms. Let's listen to how that room is described. The most holy place. This most holy place was where the Ark of the Covenant would be set. Right? This is where God's presence was, part of God's presence was said to dwell above. Listen to the description of that inner place. 1 Kings six nineteen to 22. The inner sanctuary he prepared in the innermost part of the house to set there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits high, and 20 cubits, sorry, 20 cubits wide and 20 cubits high. And he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar. And Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. And he drew chains of gold across in front of this inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also, the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. This is huge, guys. The, The inner sanctuary where God was said to dwell was equal in length, height, and width. The inner sanctuary where God was said to dwell was equal in length, Height and width. It was equal in length, height, and width. It was equal in length, height, and width. It was a perfect cube. That's where God dwelt. But also the entire inside of that building, all of it, both the most holy place and the holy place, all of it, right, 
had all these other things carved in there, right? So we look in verse 23, we learn that the most holy place, there were two cherubim inside where the, in between, on the sides of where the Ark of the Covenant was. Two cherubim, that would be angels. Think angels. And then in verse 29, all around them inside, so on the walls inside that inner part of the sanctuary, on those walls were carved cherubim, so more angels, palm trees, and open flowers. Verse 31, on the door into the main hall, that would be sort of like that one over there. On that door, there was carved more cherubim, more angels, palm trees, and open flowers. And then we learn in verse 38, in the 11th year of Solomon's reign, the temple is finished. The building's done. And we learn that the house, uh, for the name of the Lord, it took seven years to build. And look at the very next verse in chapter 7, verse 1. They finished the temple and it says the temple's finished. It took seven years to build. In the very next verse we read Solomon was building his own house 13 years. House of the Lord, seven years. Solomon's crib, 13 years. Its length, that house that he built, its length is 100 cubits or about 150 feet long. Temple, remember, is 90 feet. He made some halls and other appropriate buildings, and one of which was a hall for him to judge from. In verse 8, we learn about this house that he built, a separate house for Pharaoh's daughter. And right here, we ask, why in the world is this shoved into the middle of the building project? Why do we need to know this? Why is this shoved right here? Because you'll see, look down in verse 13. We're going to go back into the building project of the temple again. Why is this here? Well, guys, remember, the author knows what he's doing. He's not just stacking up history. In the same way that the gospel writers of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John intentionally place one story next to another to try to communicate a point. Uh, so in the same way, the author of Kings here is not just telling the news. He is not just telling you history. He's giving you theological history. He's giving you redemptive history. He's giving you eschatological history. And so... This passage, guys, is shaped, it's ordained, it's ordered by the Lord himself. It's God-breathed. There's a shape to it. And this little interruption is meant to provide yet another account where we read it and go, Huh? This doesn't seem right. Solomon's building a bigger house for himself in the temple of God. That's what it's meant to do. Did any of you read that and go, Nah, that doesn't sound right. That's exactly what the author wants you to think. And it's at this point, for those of you that have been around these sermons for the last three weeks, it's at this point we're starting to get a little frustrated with the movie producer, aren't we? Here's yet another opportunity where the camera focuses in on the keys, right, as the family walks out of the door knowing they need those keys. So it's another little drop of hint, but the author is not going to give you any satisfaction yet. you got to keep coming back. But nevertheless, we got this little story about Solomon building a bigger house, spending more time and effort on it than the house of the Lord. That's a problem. It's going to come back. Okay, back to the temple construction project. Now we're going to deal with the grounds around it. Now the author moves to the external elements. We learn in verse 13 that Solomon sends for Hiram to come down and do a little contract work. Apparently dude was good at bronze. So he's a bronze contract worker. He comes on down and we see this dude is also full of wisdom. Uh, and interesting, look at verse 14. We learn Hiram, the king of Tyre that comes down, we learn that his mom was an Israelite. She was from the tribe of Naphtali. 
And then we learn about some of the work that Hiram does in bronze. From verses four, uh, 15 to 22, we learn that, uh, we learn about these two columns that he makes to go as sort of the front doors out there. They're going to go in front of those front doors. And once again, don't just read, but listen. Right? These columns on these, he's making two very large columns there, and these columns are huge. They're 27 feet tall and 18 feet around. They're going to go at the front door. And he designed, listen for it, he designed the columns with pomegranates on latticework. And at the top of these columns he did, he formed them to make them look like lily flowers. And then he gives them names, these two columns. In verse 21, the one on the south is called Jackin, the one on the north is called Boaz. Now when I read that this week, guys, I'm thinking, ah, Solomon's kind of throwing a nod to his great-great-granddad. Story of Ruth. That's not what's going on though. The lily-like columns are given names because these two names at the front end of the temple are sort of like the name of the school that you walk into when you go into the door. Bank of America or University of Maryland, whatever. And you walk into it. That's what these two columns are doing. They have names. Those, those names are given to them very specifically to communicate the point. They're sort of like a banner to the temple. Jackin means he, the Lord, will establish. Boaz means in him is strength. And so when you read right to left, because that's how Hebrew is written, right to left, the two columns at the front of the temple, at the front door, is saying above the banner, it's saying he will establish in his strength. He will establish in his strength. In other words, it's communicating this kingdom is by God's mercy and his power. The one true God is establishing his kingdom by his mercy and his power. And of course, that language of establishing a throne reminds us, doesn't it, a couple weeks ago where we heard time and again, the author going out of his way. Remember, look at the end of chapter two. The king, the throne was established. The throne was established. Same type of language. And so just as the Lord said, he would do in the Davidic covenant. We now have this. He's establishing this house in his mercy for his strength and his people. Okay, we're almost done with the temple. Verse 23, Hiram makes a sea of cast metal. Big old giant bowls, what this thing is. Made of bronze. It's about seven and a half feet tall, 15 feet wide. And lift, listen for more symbolism. It had gourds drawn in just under the brim of the bowl. And its brim, like the columns at the top, was made to look yet again like a lily flower. And in verse 25, uh, this big old bowl, uh, we see there that it was sitting, this bowl was sitting on 12 oxen, 12 strength, 12 animals, 12. 12 is not an insignificant number in the Bible, right? We're mindful of the 12 tribes of Israel. Communicating a point. And we got uh, the oxen are for three of them are facing in each direction. North, south, east, west. So you have the basin, this body of water sitting on 12 oxen. Largely submitting. I would submit it's, uh, it's symbolic of a body of water. Because the priests are not going to really use this thing. It's too big. What they're going to use to clean themselves is what comes next. What Hiram makes next. Look at verse 27. Ten stands of bronze that had wheels on the bottom of them and a bowl inside for the priests to wash themselves. But significantly, listen for this, on the panels of those things, there's ten of them, on the side of the basin, outside, on the panels of those, we learn in verse 29, they have drawn on them lions and oxen and more cherubim, more angels. 
Hiram, the bronze contract worker, makes some more pots, shovels, and basins. And in verse verses 48 to 50, Solomon makes all the utensils needed for the work of the temple on the inside. He also makes them of gold. That's important. And then look at verse 51. Thus, all the work that the king, that King Solomon did on the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things that David, his father, had dedicated, the silver, the gold, and the vessels, and stored them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. It's done. Building's done. Complex is done. It's only left to be dedicated, and you are not going to want to miss that next week, I assure you. What an event that was. But the temple's done. And we come back to that question that I started us with. What are you doing? Where are you going? Who are you becoming? What is God building in the world? We're back to that question. Is it just a brick wall? Or is it a cathedral? Now some of you would probably think, if I was sitting where you're sitting, it will take a Herculean effort, Nathan, for you to go from this to the meaning of the world. I think you'll find that it's actually not that big of an effort. Take a look. Just peel away temple building itself and just, again, listen to all the things done to and carved on the temple. If we were to just walk up on that structure, we were walk up on the temple complex, walk up on the building and walk inside, we would be inundated with all of these things drawn on the building elements or constructed into the building elements. We would be inundated with angels everywhere, pomegranates, Palm trees, lily flowers, a sea, gourds, oxen, and lions. All of these things together in a place where God was said to dwell and where man was to serve God. Does this remind you of anything? Sound familiar? Let me put it to you like this. Imagine you're having a kid and you have a room and you want to paint your little baby's room. Catherine's thinking about this. And imagine you walked into their room and painted on the front door with these big, tall, lily-looking things. And then you walked inside, and all on the walls you'd find angels flying around and a whole bunch of palm trees and a whole bunch of fruit trees and a whole bunch of animals walking around. What would you think? Somebody say it. It makes it sound a lot like what? A garden. Say it, Laura. You could say, Eden. It sounds like the Garden of Eden. That's exactly what it's supposed to be. Reminding us of the Garden of Eden. It's supposed to remind us of the very first temple where God dwelled with his people. The temple had all of these elements because it was made to reflect the very first temple. Where there were also lilies and there were also pomegranates and there were also palm trees. And there were also oxen and lions and God's presence dwelling with his people in the cool of the day. And we know when they were exiled, angels come down. And if we read Isaiah 6, we also know that there are angels ministering in the presence of God all the time. Cherubim. So the design, guys, of this temple is no accident. It's not like, you know, Solomon was into flowers. You know, he's very intentional. The author wants you to picture in your biblical imagination a beautiful building that is made to look like a garden where God would dwell with his people yet again. Only this time, unlike the first time, they needed to do as the Lord instructed Solomon. To not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, as we just read, live under his rule and blessing, obey his word, and then they would flourish. 
They would be like the sand on the seashore and do as Genesis 1 said in the garden they were supposed to do. Be fruitful, multiply, rule over, subdue. And God would prosper them and he would be with them. That's the plan in Eden. That's the plan right here in this temple in Jerusalem. That was the plan in the beginning. That's the plan now in this portion of the passage. And guys, that is still God's plan today. God's people dwelling with God himself in a world that is perfectly right as it was meant to be under his rule and blessing for his glory and our everlasting good. That's God's purpose in Eden. That's God's purpose in 1 Kings 5. And that's God's purpose, as we will see in a moment, even more today. But we've, we've already learned enough of these seedbeds to know that this little temple thing, it ain't going to work out. right? We already know at this portion of the story, Israel had already rebelled after the exodus. All right, they're already worshiping calves and all their kinds of things. We already know that in the time of judges, right, they're doing whatever is right in their own eyes. And there's no king in Israel. That's before this time. So there's already some seeds to know that Israel's probably not going to do this right. But God had been gracious to him. He hadn't given up on his promises. He's done this. But we've given enough hints to know that Solomon is going to do as Adam did and rebel against God's word. Leading to the same thing that Adam had to happen to him and Eve. Exile. Away from the temple. Being just, they wanted to be just like the world. And we know that when we get to the ending, the historical ending of the Old Testament, if you've never read it before, here it is. When you get to the ending of the old, historical ending of the Old Testament, you find that they rebuilt a temple and then they come back in and everything seems like it's going great. And when you get to the ending of the Old Testament, you find they're back to doing just like the world again. That's the ending. That's how the Old Testament ends. But it is with great joy that we read the first lines of the New Testament. First line of the New Testament, Matthew 1, 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The son of Abraham. He's come. One greater than Solomon is here. That's what the author of Matthew's, that's what Matthew's trying to do. And then as we read through those books of the Gospels, we read about Jesus coming as the God-man, fully God and fully man, living the life Adam, Abraham, and Solomon, and the rest of us could have never lived. He, we find him living with complete righteousness. We find Jesus regularly teaching about the kingdom of heaven and teaching us to pray, what? Thy will be done, where? On earth as it is in heaven. Jesus wants this to be heaven. Jesus teaches us, and we learn from John chapter 2 of a time when Jesus stands in the exact same place of the events of 1 Kings 5 to 7. Jesus is standing there in the complex, the temple complex, and Jesus looks at that temple that had been rebuilt and says in John 2, 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up. And he, Jesus, of course, was referencing his own body. He was the temple. Jesus, we learn, tabernacled, templed among us. And we have seen his glory, John writes. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And so the temple made without hands came, Jesus, came for the sole purpose of being destroyed. So that he could build a temple that could never be destroyed. In the resurrection. This is why the resurrection is so important. Jesus, understanding himself to be the temple... 
is destroyed on the cross. He therefore on the cross, he's purchasing. That's the price of redemption. His blood and his body is making the payment for all sinners that repent and believe upon him. And at the cross, as he's shedding his life for those that trust him, there the temple is being destroyed. There we have our sin to be judged right there on the cross. And as that temple comes down three days later, that temple is rebuilt and that temple will never be destroyed. Jesus defeats sin and death, and he therefore is made possible to go up into the true, true temple in the heavenly of heavenlies, wherein he goes to the Father, he pleads the merits of his own blood and body, and then God the Father then sends the Spirit to then come to those that trust him, so that now we are the temple. This is amazing. Now God dwells with us that believe. But now Jesus, we understand why he is Why he called himself the greater Solomon. Because he's the greater temple builder. He's building a better house that cannot come down. He is the true and everlasting son of David. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So that by his sacrifice we, he might offer us what Israel could never offer us. Jesus could offer us heaven on earth. Gospel. God's presence with God's people in God's place under his rule and blessing for his glory and his people's everlasting good. Jesus secures that temple, as it were, in the gospel. So then all those that die to self, live to Christ, repenting and believing on Christ alone for salvation, believing Jesus is heaven for us. We are the church of Jesus Christ. And it is said of us, this is going to blow your mind. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. He's writing to Christians. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of, there it is, the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, do you hear the temple complex building? In whom the whole structure is being joined together, grows into a what? Y'all say it with me. A holy temple. There we go. In the Lord, in him, you, that's second person, plural church in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. This is amazing. We are a temple and we are being built. We are in Christ. Christ in us up. He's, he's growing us up into who we are in him. Like the temple building, he is restoring us by making us fit for heaven with him. Carlton, we might understand why Temple Baptist called their church Temple Baptist, right? They want to keep these things in front of us. Had all kinds of people saying, Nathan, get rid of Restoration Church, take temple. Maybe they were right, more than I think about this. God's presence dwelling within us here in our place, in this body. Yes, your body. I don't care what you think about your body. That's God's body. He made it for you. And he lives within you, Christian. We are now able to do what Israel could not do. In that we are able, by the power of the resurrection, we are able, in the presence of the Spirit, we now can submit. Let sin not have dominion over you. We now can submit to the Word so that God would then build us up from the inside out and that we could be like a cathedral. Beloved Christian, you are made of gold and God. You are not God. I want to be clear about that. But God dwells within you. And he's rebuilding you day by tireless day. 
And one day, Jesus, the true and everlasting son of David, will return to finish what he has already secured by the shedding of his blood. He will return and he will do as he taught us to pray. He will make heaven on earth. He will come and finally complete what he began, what he commanded in Eden, what he secured in Golgotha. He will have the new Jerusalem, heaven dwelling on the earth. Take a listen to the ending of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, and tell me if this sounds at all familiar. Verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, from heaven to earth, from heaven to earth, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Thought about this yesterday with Mark and Stephanie's wedding. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold. The dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. This city that's coming to the earth, no more death, no more sin and God's dwelling with his people. Revelation 21, 7 goes on to talk about those that are trusting in Christ and therefore have conquered sin and death with Christ. It says of them, tell me if this doesn't sound familiar, Revelation 21, 7. I will be his God and he will be my son. The exact same promise God made to David now could be said of us since we are in Christ, the true son of David. Revelation 21, 14, we learn more about the coming city of God whose foundations who are, by the way, guess how many? Twelve, just like those oxen on the sea of bronze. Listen to Revelation 21, 15 to 18. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold. To measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies, the city that's coming down, New Jerusalem, right? Heaven coming down. The city lies four square, its length, the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod. 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. Its length and width and height are equal. Have we heard that before? He also measured the wall, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel, cherubim, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper while the entire city was made of gold. Y'all know any other places, maybe from 1 Kings chapter 6, that had an entire city made of gold? Y'all catching this? But there's something different about this temple that comes down out of heaven to earth. You got to get excited about this. This is amazing how the Bible fits together. Something different, though, about this temple that comes down and makes its dwelling place on the earth. Revelation 21, 22 says, John says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. So there is no need for a building like Solomon's temple anymore, guys. In the new Jerusalem. Because God will finally dwell on a restored earth with his fully restored people. There's no need of physical buildings because now the earth will be his. No more sin to be separated from. No more types. No more shadows. Revelation 22.4 also says that they, God's people, will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. Which, by the way, is the same thing priests would have had on their foreheads. The names of the tribes of Israel when they went into minister. Now the names will be on our heads as we go and minister and dwell with God in the new heavens and new earth. 
Everything we read about in the final chapter of redemption is the fulfillment of what we read about in 1 Kings 5 to 7. A city of gold built with God dwelling in our midst with no more struggle against sin and death, but only eternal glory as we gaze into the face of God in a world as it is supposed to be in the beginning. This is where the world is headed. This is the meaning of life. And this is the destiny for all the children of Christ. This is where we are going. This is what God is doing. But now we wait. As we enjoy the first fruits of Jesus' resurrection, we are not there yet. We are now the temple, God's place, God's people, but we are still being built. We are not yet where we will be, nor are we what we will be. Which brings me back to our word of application and exhortation. And I'm going to finish here. I know I've been going a lot, but I hope you've been encouraged by this meditation. So I'm going to ask you to do something briefly. Flip over to 1 Corinthians 3. Here's our exhortation. And if you don't have a Bible, the words will be up behind me. 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. This is Paul meditating on the realities of the gospel. They're fighting over tribalism. That's never happened before. Some things, there's nothing new under the sun, folks. And he says to the church, Paul says to the church in Corinth, who are breaking up over all these little factions over around their little favorite leaders, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 9, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. By the way, he's talking in the plural form. Verse 16 to 18. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And then his final word of exhortation. How do, what, what do we do? Verse 21, in light of this, the fact that the church is now God's temple. Verse 21 to 23. So let no one boast in men for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or John MacArthur or John Piper or whoever. Or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. All of it. This whole world is yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Do you see what he's saying, guys? He's saying you're already God's dwelling place because you belong to Christ. Which means everything that God made very good in the beginning... And is making new in the restoration of all things. It's all yours. It's all yours. What are you going to fight over this little corner of the universe over? Everything's yours in Christ. Therefore, what do we have to worry about? What do we have to argue about? God is not just building walls, beloved. God is building a cathedral in you and in me and in us. And the day will come when we will have it all. And we will inherit it all. And it will be perfect. And it will be right. And it will be true. Guys, the unbelieving world and the Christian sometimes looks the same. They lose their jobs, we lose our jobs. They dress similar to us, we dress similar to them. The difference is we know where we're going. And we know who we are. That's a huge difference. They don't have that. They don't know where they're going. Which explains why there's so much despair, right? We are part of what God's doing in the world. And what is that? Again, I'll give it to you succinctly. Ephesians 1, 10 to 11. The plan that for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth, in him, in Christ, we have obtained, notice the finished state, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Beloved, your life has meaning. Your life has meaning. 
Your life has purpose. I know it doesn't feel like that sometimes, but it does. It says it right there. God is building a cathedral in you and in us. We're going somewhere. We have a destiny. We have reason for hope in the worst of times and the best of days. You are God's temple. We are God's temple. And he intends to wash you with the water of the word right here in the work of the church as he chisels us out. Stacking brick on top of laborious brick. Sometimes it's hard work for him. We make it hard. But all of us, God's building his people, all of us, small and great, big and tall, young and old, black and white, men and women, Republican and Democrat, Southern Baptist, Anglican and Presbyterian, rural and urban, American and Somalian. He lives with his gospel loving people and he is oh so painfully working to create in us a home for him and for us. With him in the temple made without heaven, made without hands, the new Jerusalem. And so, guys, I ask you this question, and I'm going to stop now, I promise. What might change in our lives personally and our lives corporately if we started thinking about this a little more? What would happen? What would happen to the tribalism? What would happen to our despair? What would happen to our purposelessness, our boredom? What would happen to our marriages, to our families, to our relationships? What would happen if we started thinking more, Jesus shed his blood so that he could live with me? And he's making me fit to be with him in the New Jerusalem. And he did not do that with me, but he does it with that other person that I don't normally get along with in the church. And that other person, those other kinds of churches. What would happen if we started thinking like that and stopped pointing fingers at each other, but instead started seeing that God is building a cathedral in our midst? How might that change in our personal lives and our corporate life together? Oh, beloved, I beg of us as a church, please, let's be a kind of people that know where we're going, that know that God's building a cathedral within us, that we have hope, that we have destiny. And it's not just some pie in the sky. It's promised right here. Jesus secured it with his own blood. And soon enough, it will come. And the temple will be here on this earth. And Jesus will have what he died for. He will have heaven on earth. I don't know about what you guys are going to think about doing, but I intend to find this work out. I intend to keep putting one brick on top of another by the, as the Lord gives me strength. And I intend to do it with you and you with me. And it's going to be awesome when we get to heaven. And I'm sitting around the new Jerusalem and I'm talking about all that God did. Join me in that work as so many of you have. May we give ourselves to seeing ourselves as God's temple and knowing that we are going to a temple that is made without hands and it will endure forever. And if you are not a Christian, I plead with you to give your life to Jesus because otherwise you won't be there. You will be outside that city in the same way that Adam and Eve were exiled. So repent, trust the true king, have life, no peace, that you might have a place in the temple with God. Let's pray. Oh, the joy, God. To take words on a page that seems so meaningless. And find profound transcendence such that our lives could be ordered and where you're headed. Help us to be part of that, God. Help us to see ourselves as you see us. Help us to see one another as you, as we, as you see one another. Help us to know where we're going. Give us hope. Reminded of that passage, Paul said that Kings was written so that we might have hope. May we be people of hope. Thank you that you've not only promised it, but you've secured it. And we ask finally, come, Lord Jesus, please come make heaven on earth. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.